0: You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rapoport. On today's show, Jose Andres, a man of boundless enthusiasm and many, many words. Jose is the James Beard award-winning chef of such restaurants as The Bazaar and Bar and Haleo. And on today's show, Andrew Knowlton and I sit down and talk to him about how Washington, D.C. has kind of suddenly become one of the most vibrant food cities in America. And we get a bit into uh, food politics, a subject of which Jose is very passionate about. So let's do this. Here is Andrew and I and Jose Andres. So Jose, you had a couple of glasses of wine on the plane or at lunch?
1: On the plane. Always on the plane. <laughs> but the, but the, the plane ride from D.C. to New York is like 41 minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's great I only had two. I have enough for two bottles. I, I have a hard time on a plane, raining, windy. Oh, you're a nervous, sleep, a nervous fire? Not really. I'm a guy that finds good excuses to have a glass of wine at uh, 10 a.m. <laughs> See, Nolte, Wouldn't you think you're my hero Jose?
0: Wouldn't you think that he'd be very discriminating about the wine they serve on the on the shuttle from I DC? I don't, to,
2: I don't think that's in Spanish DNA, is it? There's no such thing as moderation.
1: If you're gonna do something in a plane. <laughs> 10,000 feet <laughs> up in the sky. This, is, this it's sounds like a, a go- gl- <laughs> glass of wine or a Yoni Walker or anything else.
0: Okay, so we got a lot to talk about. Um, the first thing is a couple months ago, we're getting ready to do our best new restaurants issue in America. And Andrew Knowlton here comes to me and he says, All right, you, this might sound a little crazy, but I'm about to name. Washington D.C. the best restaurant city in America, and I was like, "What the what? That's that's banana pants."
2: Adam hadn't been out to eat in D.C. since 1989, though. Just for the record,
0: that's true. The last restaurant I went to was when Haleo opened in 19 like what was that 93, 93.
1: Yeah, March, April. Yeah. I, I took I took a date there. Like, and probably this probably would have been June 93. So we can say that uh, the choosing of Washington D.C. is rigged. Because <laughs> yeah. we know that you have a very yeah. big love for Washington, D.C. You are like, you like, only having Andrew supporting that was <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah. he's making my <laughs> life easy.
0: So, well, talk to us, how much has the city food scene
1: changed since you opened Haleo in 1993? So uh, amazing what D.C. has become. Um, we We need always to remember before 1993, because when I arrived at town, we had people already like, the amazing, the unique, Jean-Louis Paladin. I mean, mm-hmm. without a doubt, one of the top three French chefs to arrive to America. Yeah, but no one in
0: Washington, D.C. really knew he was there. Barely. Besides, besides the very, very wealthy who would go to
1: Watergate. Also, his restaurant
0: was in Watergate,
1: which is like, but, wait, what? But imagine what he did. And this is the stories we need to be telling. Uh, Jean-Louis comes to Haleo one week after I open. It's on a Sunday. It's the only table because we were in a neighborhood but that nobody was there yeah. in the pen quarter. And he calls the chef. I show up and with his accent, uh, you are the no, no, Spanish no, no, chef no, no. <laughs> and you are a great chef. I know. And you, you, you would travel. Yeah. You work in the best restaurants okay. of the world and Spain and Michelin star. Yes, 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 yes. He was going on and on and okay, so this Spanish omelette sucks. Go <laughs> back to the kitchen and make me a good one. You know, that was the Jean-Louis Paladin and many others, Michel Richard. So before I arrived there, the city was already with some names that they were they were... Super important, Gianni Cam, that everybody forgot, Michel Richard moving in from LA,
0: Roberto Donna, Roberto
1: yes. Donna, this superpower Italian. All of them, but they're like,
0: but now I feel like the city itself is more democratic, if you will, in its food tastes. It's a
1: there's not just the big names, it's good food everywhere, right? The world has become more democratic. Yeah. So, over the last 20 years, we got many more names Mm -hmm. showing up from the Jeff Bubens, the Anne Cushions, I mean, so many names. And then we began in the last probably 10 years to start seeing younger chefs becoming the owners of their own places, Mm -hmm. moving away from the more traditional cooking, Mm -hmm. call it Italian, French, or Spanish, and start doing the ramen shops, the Asian, the New American. Filipino. The Filipino, the, the cocktail places, call it whatever. Yes, it democratized food in Washington, D.C., and made it one of the most interesting cities in the country, period. So I was so happy you uh, recognized Washington yeah. as but, that city. But I
2: have a question. Is it is it the, cost, the consumer that changed in D.C.? Was it, like, more affordable neighborhoods, like actually having neighborhood restaurants? Because Adam and I always talked about D.C. There was... Never really kind of a middle class there. You know, there was no. not neighborhood. A people younger. Or I mean, younger. I'll, I'll just
0: be frank. When I grew up in DC in the seventies and eighties, it was still a very segregated city. It was either very black or very white, and there wasn't like a young sort of might more diverse population. There weren't diverse neighborhoods. Um there was like Georgetown and Chevy Chase. And, and and I think now so much of the food scene is also reflective of how much the city has gotten more dynamic, more diverse, more interesting. And there are restaurants to accompany A more sort of, yeah, I think it's a more modern city than it ever was back in the day. But
2: also, Adam, and I'll say this to you, Jose, when Genevieve, who runs Bad Saint, came and talked to us, from her perspective, obviously she's younger than all of us here, but she was saying that when Obama came into office, there was kind of a palpable change in just the vibrancy of the city and and celebrating diversity in different kinds of foods. But I'll throw that out
1: there too. I will not say it's one reason why Washington has become the city that it is today. I think it's a little bit uh, that we can uh, grant uh, uh, the reason to, like, President Obama's arrival, important. But we can say that also in Washington we have people like Ted Leonsis and Steve Case, the founders of American Online, that they are Washingtonians that they are people that they love to support entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and this is something like you see through the city nobody is aware But this is part of the success of the city. It is the new neighborhoods opening up. It is something uh, more and more people moving in. Uh, Everybody says that Washington is a city about politics. But that brings, it's not true. It's not only about politics. It's a city that between embassies, between the National Institute of Health. We have organizations from around the world. It's people from around the world that makes Washington, D.C. today one of the most open-minded cities anywhere in America. Mm-hmm. I would say even as much as New York. That's what has made Washington, even with only 600,000 citizens in the city itself, even we are 2, 3 million if we take the surrounding neighborhoods in Virginia and Maryland, makes Washington a super, super interesting city. We have an hour away great wineries. We have Chinatowns 30 minutes away from downtown Washington, DC. We have Ethiopian restaurants. Obviously we have everything else mm-hmm. but Washington as a city today, you were so smart in naming <laughs> it because you saw what maybe others were not seeing. I've been saying for a long time Washington is as good as any city but there was and a, yeah. you giving this this recognition to Washington is only doing the merits that even a small city like Washington has the power to become yeah. a super interesting food city. But I think it's interesting what you
0: brought up the type of restaurants that have been opening there recently and it also gets back to entrepreneurs. You have a lot of sm- more small business owner restaurants, like you named Bad Saint, your number two restaurant in America, Filipino restaurant young by, run by young Filipino Americans in, in D.C., uh, Rose's Luxury a few years ago. That's very different than Michelle Richard and Jean-Louis
1: back in the day, who were restaurants, high-end restaurants. But I think what you see today is what's happening very much all around America, yeah. that now high-end cooking Sophisticated cooking uh, doesn't need to cost any more three, four hundred dollars no. per person. Hold on, it's a space for those type of restaurants, but that you can go and have a great meal in a very funky neighborhood with a young chef that just came out sometimes even from his mother's kitchen, but <laughs> yeah. he decides yeah. to do a restaurant that happens is great. De- All right, but as an old guy. Does that scare you? Has that is that influence how you do what
0: you do at your restaurants? No, it doesn't scare me a lot. And by uh, the way, we're the same age, so I'm allowed to call you. I'm 47. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, you look a lot younger you than got, me, you but got, you have six months on me. But
1: I'm 47, and what this only tells me is that you always need to be on your toes. You cannot go to sleep because it's somebody coming. <laughs> I don't but think
0: I don't think anyone's accusing you of sleeping too much. It's not
1: I? on the food business; it's in every business. But I do believe that this is only telling everybody, guys. What what you thought you knew yesterday is not the same as what you know today. So you need always to be on the lookout. Listen, when you did the best <laughs> restaurants, uh, uh, the best new restaurants, and I opened China Chilcano by Peruvian, I didn't make it on the list. And I was peace at best. Oh, I know. I got the emails. In a good—but <laughs> still, you have a hard time and a hard work because it's— Plenty of great restaurants opening. Yeah. Obviously, I'm going to defend my territory. I'm going to tell you, you know one thing? I think I'm as good as this one and maybe a little bit better than this other one. But it's all relative. Yeah. At the end, good restaurants are always going to be making it. And the great thing is that so many restaurants to choose from
0: oh, in Washington
1: amazing. and across America mm-hmm. that this is only telling me that our business is really, really becoming a more interesting one, because yep. Yep. everybody keeps saying, I'm unhappy with what happened before. I want to do new things, and I want to challenge anybody else. And that's what the young people are doing now. They're challenging everybody and everyone and so listen welcome to the competition that's what yeah. America is in uh, the 21st uh, century uh, I do
0: yeah I believe food's better now I mean it's light years better than it was 10 15 years ago across yeah. the country in the small cities and big cities and and also I think the competition is good it makes everyone better but,
2: yeah but I think what Jose I mean he, we're talking about people that own one restaurant and Jose how many restaurants do you own now 20 something 20 something. <laughs> But what's interesting is something you did very intelligently is not just stick with kind of the traditional fine dining, but beef steak, which is kind of your fast casual place. What's your hope about that? I guess why did you do that? Did were you eating health more healthfully? And you know, tell us about that.
1: Well, long story short, I I, I love vegetables more than anybody can imagine. I really love the 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 first green peas when they're tiny. Uh, and I love the first morels, and I love leeks. I am, uh, I don't know what I like to you. Uh, vegetables is what you will see me eating most of the time. Uh, in restaurants when I go to Spain, in the seasons, or in my home, I have a little farm in my house. Uh, my wife has plenty of family recipes. Uh, my restaurants, without realizing, like, say, my great restaurant, the menu is so full of vegetables. It's not like we are vegetarian, I I don't like those kind of stereotypes. Oh, it's a vegetarian restaurant. No, it's a restaurant that serves vegetables. To me, it's a difference. So one day I I, I thought, I mean, I think... What America needs really is to be providing, especially the youngsters, Mm -hmm. opportunity to eat vegetables outside home, which every day becomes more and more difficult. Take a look at what our supermarkets is. Only 3% of the supermarket is dedicated to fresh foods. And I thought, let me do a fast food restaurant (laughs) where only vegetables will be at the heart and center of the concept. And that's what beefsteak is. Okay,
0: but what about... um you're a restaurateur. How essential is it for a restaurateur today, like yourself, to have a fast, casual concept in your portfolio? Because you're seeing it more and more among successful, big-name
1: chefs. Like, it's, uh, t- Can you talk about that? Well, listen, Steve Feltz, very much, we can say, was the first chef train that after leaving the CIA, mm-hmm. he went and he opened Chipotle. Heard of it. And I congratulate because Steve Feltz really was the one that revolutionized that we can serve better food to the masses. And still, I do believe he has a lot more things to do in the years to come. Then we saw, obviously, Shake Shack, a restaurateur that opened one restaurant, a burger place that has become... Wow, a sensation. Now it's worldwide and who knows? McDonald's probably is already looking over the shoulders saying, <laughs> What's going on here? I, I would That's be, yeah. a good thing. Now we see more young chefs getting into the realm of fast foods, mm-hmm. of trying to serve the masses. Chefs like me, at the end we are very few. We only feed the few. And I do believe that we have we need to have more chefs and food people to be involved in feeding the
0: masses. Well, how do you do that? How many beefsteaks are there now? How many do you think there
1: can be two years from now? What's the game plan? Right now we have six. Probably we have four or five more signed. Some of them we didn't announce yet. I think by the end of next year to 17th, we will have between 12th and 15th. And then there is a moment to be saying, are we going to make it to 100? to 200? We'll see. Now I'm going one by one. I'm trying to make sure the concept is likable by what many.
0: If, when someone asks you, they're sitting next to you on the shuttle, and you tell them about beefsteak over a glass of wine, uh, and they ask, what is beefsteak? What do you tell them?
1: I always tell them the quick thing is just making vegetables sexy. It's only to tell them that vegetables is not something but they you say, well I say, what kind of restaurant is it? What do you say? Oh, it's a... Uh, it's, um It's a fast food restaurant where we showcase vegetables at their best. It's it's a concept that we cook the vegetables fresh in front of you, not like every other fast food restaurant that the food has been cooked somewhere else, thousand miles from where you are. It's a restaurant that brings very often uh, the best foods from farms that they are not too far away from where they are produced. Sometimes they are produced above in your rooftop. Beefsteak at the end is the restaurant that America needs today, which is simple food, not a... chicken uh, breast tofu base that looks like it's been grilled, I think foods need to be what they are. They're trying to create foods that are fake and taste like fake, and, and, and they give you hopes of a better world. No, foods need to be what they are, and that's what beefsteak is. Just making sure that vegetables are respected for a change.
2: I think it's interesting, Jose, like making food to the masses more accessible, because your restaurants are expensive. The restaurants that we go to a lot of the times are expensive. Do you remember when Rick Bayless did uh, – he did that thing with Burger King where he was consulting on their menu, and he got raked over the coals. How could a chef go and do this partnership with with Burger King? And his argument, which didn't work out, but is I, I only reach so many people through Top, Topolo or Frontera Grill. I can reach millions through fast food. And, you know, fast forward 20 years and now you have all these chefs who are kind of getting on this movement and I think uh, changing the way people eat, hopefully for good.
1: Uh, I think it's very easy used to criticize a chef that decides to partner with a super, super big corporation. Uh, I'm not going to get into that already. This is all business. What, yes, I can say is that chefs, we need to be thinking about this. Who do you want to feed America? A clown or a chef? If the answer is that the chef is who should be feeding America, only we need more chefs uh, with very entrepreneurial spirits to get on, sometimes partner with bigger companies than them, sometimes super big corporations, so everything is on the table, and trying to bring the best possible we, food we can at the most affordable yeah. price to every single American. But we need to do it in a way that is conscious, yes, with the environment, that is respectful of maybe the season sometimes, mm-hmm. that can be as local as local can be, yeah. but also we have to be pragmatic. We cannot become the Taliban of the food world. But if we want to feed America and the world better, we're going to have to start partnering with those other corporations maybe that they are already doing it Mm -hmm. yeah and we need to bring our
0: expertise to do it better well two things i mean i i do think a part of it is like there needs to be an appetite for that and you and i realize manhattan like we're an island or we're an island off the coast of america but you do see at lunchtime over here at the food court at Brooklyn place i mean there's a burger place and there's a barbecue place and not a lot of people go to those everyone is going to toss or they're going to sweet green or they're like people are want to eat healthier, but as you're saying with beefsteak, like healthy in a delicious way, not healthy in a sort of health food way. Like they're eating that way because it tastes good and they and they want to feel good. Um, so I think that's one important. And then also you said in terms of partnering, um, our mutual friend Sam Cass uh, from D.C., who used to be the Obama's private chef and worked with Michelle on her food initiatives these last several years. I mean a lot of what Sam is doing now is working with these big food companies because they – they know it's good for business to be more conscious, more organic-minded, and and it's and if you can sway
1: those big guys to come over to your side, that's when you can make real impact. It's, not, it's the only way forward at this point. I mean, uh, we are in this moment that by the year 2050 we're going to be nine billion people in the world. At the end, sometimes we only care what's happening in our neighborhood. Yeah, uh, Is my neighborhood taken care of? Uh, is my city taken care of? Maybe is my state taken care of or my country? But the truth is that now the world uh, has become much smaller, and anything that happens anywhere is going to be influencing what happens right here in New York or right here in Washington, D.C. So every decision we make, even if, if we think that it's only affecting the surrounding areas of the people we are able to, is not true. Today we're seeing that we can be voting with what we eat today the consumer has this potential of influencing the way we're going to be uh, feeding America and the world in the years to come only by the decisions we make in our supermarket or the day we go to a restaurant or what we order. So every meal from today counts as a vote of how are we going to be feeding America and the world in the future. So everybody needs to be thinking about that.
0: Um, On that note, you in a few days are receiving a National Humanities Medal from the president. At the White House, along with such luminaries as Winton Marcellus, NPR's Terry Gross, Ron Chernow, who wrote the Hamilton book, as well yes. as many other books. Um, you do a ton of charity work, uh sort of humanitarian efforts in Haiti and elsewhere. My question is 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 not why, because I know you're a big hearted guy, but um you've got your twenty seven restaurants or so. You also have a a loving wife you've got kids you have a farm <laughs> in your a wife. house and he's got a wife. Uh,
2: yeah. loving wife
0: I, don't,
1: I don't understand how do you do it uh, I will always say team 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 that's why sometimes it's very easy exit for me when they tell me but Jose you are not in your restaurant well I don't need to be I have a chef that is 10 times better than me and a, <laughs> and a group of sous chefs uh, better than me and a group of cooks that they are amazing and uh, how I do it is having really a, an amazing team. I think we all need to remember that we are only as good as the people we have around yeah. us. And over, our, over the last 23, 24 years in America, what I've been always trying to do is making sure that I will have that team that believes in what I do, but that they I will believe in what they believe too. But one thing is real. I can only be cooking in one restaurant, like mini bar, 12 yeah. seats. I have like 24 cooks and I will be very happy. But to me, it's very important that I deliver a wall to my daughters uh, before I die that will be better than, than the wall it is today. So for me, going to Haiti... And helping the people of Haiti or going to LA and helping Robert Erger open LA Kitchen that we're going to be feeding 25,000 veterans and elderly is a way to improve my my neighborhoods, improve my cities, making sure that places like Haiti, that, that they seem too far away, but they're very close to us. People are doing better. And I can go to sleep with my conscience being at least... With the hope that we try. I don't think you sleep at night. I think but you I
0: think you sleep like two hours a night it's like max Einstein. in yeah. the food
1: business, and we are all food business. Yeah. Unfortunately, we cannot only be having fun and drinking champagne and great caviar. Yeah, but you
0: do that too. That's what it'll I don't get. You do, that do all too. that.
1: <laughs> but I make sure that also I have my mind saying, Can we only improve a little bit? The world that we have around and, us, so and that's, do, and that's phenomenal. Do you it.
0: have an agreement about how many days a month you're at home? What do you tell your wife and
1: daughters? I negotiate. I negotiate, but <laughs> I take negotiate. my <laughs> I, I take my breaks in summer. But then summer is where I meet friends and family, and if it's work, they come to me instead of me going to them. So it's kind of organizing your life in a way that fits you.
2: Wait, Jose, was there was there one time where you went from being just just a chef, restaurateur, and being turning into a humanitarian? Was there an event or one thing that you're like, you know what, I got to do something else besides?
1: It was one moment. I was in the Spanish Navy, and I think the first time I went to Ivory Coast, Abidjan, and I spent three, four days. How old were you? Uh, roughly 18, 19. Mm. And at that time, I read, uh, even probably it was 17, Join Stenbeck, the pearl mm-hmm. that will describe about that family that that, that that they were, were 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 super poor and were uh, fishing for oysters and hoping to find the the pelt was the only way to move forward. I think those two events is what told me we can do something else. When I arrived to Washington, D.C., I met Robert Egger, to me, the biggest humanitarian we have in America with a very clear idea how to improve our cities through the power of food. I joined D.C. Central Kitchen and since then, I've never looked back. I've always been next to Robert Egger and, and knowing that if we think about food beyond the enjoyment that we have in a party and in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we see that the power that food has to become an agent of change, we can all have great, amazing restaurants, having a great time cooking a barbecue in our home, but at the same time making sure that our neighborhoods are doing better because food justice is around the corner, whatever food justice means. But for me, it was a very simple idea. I cannot just go home knowing that the around the corner in Washington, D.C., I have people that they don't know what they're going to be feeding the children that night. Mm-hmm. I cannot have a successful restaurant and feel a, su- a successful chef or cook knowing that we are not doing something else to at least trying to hope to improve the lives of others, even if we don't know them. I do believe that's the destiny of the food industry, to make sure that we provide for others what we dream to aim to provide for uh, ourselves and to our families. That's the new, that's the new way of the food business.
0: One of our presidential candidates right now uh, talks a lot about – talks tough about immigration. Um, you're an immigrant. A lot of the – I imagine people who work for you are. Um,
1: have you waded into that issue at all? Uh, yeah. I've been uh, giving a few speeches, and I think I'm going to give a few more in the next weeks. I think uh – I'm watching the Statue of Liberty from where we are yeah, right now. Yeah, you can literally see the Statue of Liberty. Uh, I came in a Spanish ship on the Navy of Spain under the Barrazzano Bridge, seeing Ellis Island, seeing that Statue of Liberty. I think the conversation is very, very, very simple. Uh, I think... Uh, Um, that presidential candidate talking about building walls in a moment that we should be talking about building bridges. This presidential candidate trying to say that every single immigrant seems has nothing to do with what America has become. I think especially young people are going to realize that at the end, uh, what America is all about, all those beautiful stars in the American flag. Uh, Those stars very much to me are the example that America is a country that believes in inclusion. And it's not a country that has built on exclusion anymore. And if all we believe that America is about inclusion, not only about including others, but about all the positive things that we all want our children to believe in, to hope for a better tomorrow, it's very clear uh, what the, who is the candidate that anybody should be supporting. But a candidate that supports exclusion of keeping people out, of secrecy, of not sharing taxes, of, of believing that we should be talking about terror and about all the bad things versus be talking about the great things that we are all about, the, 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 the great way that our country keeps moving with a lot of things to fix, but always knowing that America wakes up every morning, going to work, dreaming of a better tomorrow. That's the type of people we need to be yeah. running our business and leading our country. I, I think I know he's going to vote for but okay. yeah. so,
2: I'm going to put you on the spot. You don't have to answer this, but do you think restaurants should be allowed to or should hire
1: undocumented workers? I do believe that uh, uh, we all should be uh, uh, abide by the laws of, of the country. What we need to be doing, the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. is a one million-plus... Restaurant chefs, workers, farmers, showing up in front of Congress and tell them, what are we waiting for immigration reform? This ain't about Democrats. This ain't about Republicans. This is about over 11 million undocumented, many of them, many years in America, helping mm. America keep being prosperous and moving forward. I can tell you one thing today. I don't care if anybody says that unemployment uh, is higher than it is. In the restaurant industry, we cannot hire employees. So if I am a company that I abide by the laws and I have e verified, hmm. I cannot keep growing or I cannot keep hiring people to cover my positions because there's not employees out there. So what we need to be doing as a country because it's the moral thing to do because it's the right business decision is to pass immigration reform. If somebody wants to break the the laws, that's up to them. Me, I do believe that the way to do it is what America has been all about. Let's push Congress, let's push Senate, let's push the White House and Congress to pass once and for all immigration reform. And the restaurant industry with over 10% of the American population dedicated to feed America, we have one of the biggest voices to hopefully, to 17th, pass immigration reform once and for all.
0: What about food? You, you came to America as a young guy. Well, why did you want to stay? And what was that first, quote-unquote, American thing you ate where you were like, oh, I, I can hang out here for a while?
1: <laughs> um, first time, I arrived to Pensacola. And if you don't know about Pensacola, you should visit because it's the town known as being the town of the Five Flags. And we arrived around June on a celebration, which is the celebration of the Five Flags where many different countries at one one moment had control of that town. One of them, the Spanish-Castilian flag. That moment I thought, man... (laughs) <laughs> I belong <laughs> <In here>. Pensacola. <laughs> I do belong here. And I remember eating there in Pensacola. This um, is like going back to the Ponce de Leon days. Like the- <laughs> very much, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very yeah. much. <laughs> and I remember being there in Pensacola. Uh, um, I, I was kind of welcomed by a family and a restaurateur. It's been a long time. I don't see them, but I hope uh, I, w- I will. And I ate beautiful uh, shrimp that they were cut off Louisiana. Mm. And I think this is the first time I had a soft-shell crab. And and quite frankly, between the Spanish flag there that was telling me <laughs> I belong here. <laughs> and those foods, I think, is is for me, since I arrived, I, I have uh, a firm belief that uh, I, I told myself, I'm going to come back. And after I finished my military service, um, I came back. And I came back to New York. And quite frankly, uh, I know I'm very proud of my Spanish heritage. But inside me, I even with my accent, I, I believe uh, my destiny was always to, to, to end here in America. I really love the States. It has given me a lot. I've learned so much, especially in the streets of New York. The best university for any young kid uh, <laughs> to learn, especially about certainly food.
0: The, certainly the most fun.
1: So, so was that a
2: difficult thing, you know, a few years ago when you decided to become a citizen of the U.S. and kind of just somebody who's identified so much with Spanish food and, I mean, a lot of the first ingredients I ever had, Spanish ingredients, I had them at your restaurants. I mean...
1: No, no, not at all. And even take a look what happened. I opened an American restaurant called America Eats. Yeah. That was uh, back in the 30s from the World Progress, uh, World, the, the World Project Administration, WPA. That one of the soup programs was America Eats. When mm-hmm. immigrants and Latinos and blacks they were not allowed to receive any benefits under our WPA, they put them in programs like America Eats. So I got that idea, I created that name. And I've been somehow giving back by trying to bring dishes that somehow are disappearing from America, like the oyster ketchup, or trying to showcase great dishes like Irma Rombauer, Joy of Cooking, mm-hmm. fame, that she had this amazing cocktail with grapefruit and shrimp that I think is lovely and somehow has totally disappeared from from the American recipe repertoire. Mm-hmm. Well, Jose, we are we're thrilled to have you in our country. Um,
0: but. If you want to stay, you got to take the lightning round right now. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Either or questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Manchego
1: or Idiazabal? How do you pronounce that? Idiazabal. Very good. Oh, that's not bad. Manchego from North Madrid, Idiazabal, Basque Country. Uh, I will go Idiazabal. My mother born in Basque Country, and I love Idiazabal.
2: How about jamón iberico or
0: country ham? Um, Jamón iberico. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's correct. Your, your country ham ain't all that but, but I country love. Country ham's good. Come I on. love, I, and especially if it's uh, Virginia Smithfield, but Iberico, you know, is my baby. Treadmill or Stairmaster? Oh, man. <laughs> I, 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 Oh, man. That's a tough one. I, I, I will say treadmill for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's m- treadmill. Yeah. Michelle or Barack? Michelle all the way. Yeah. And ba- Everybody uh, always says Michel. Uh, and Barack will, uh, will agree with, it, with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Fitbit or Apple Watch? Uh, uh, I will go with, I've been thinking about it. Uh, I think I'm going to end going with Fitbit, but I don't like to carry anything on my wrist. Mm. So I need it to be on my pocket. Um, I like this one. Uh, vermouth or gin tonic? Gin and tonic, people of the world. Gin and tonic. How how do you you make yours? If the gin is
0: from Spain. So how do you make your gin? If I'm coming to your house and you're making me a gin and tonic. Let me tell you, everything is about
1: proportions. Obviously, uh, I mean, my restaurants all sell a ton of gin and tonics, but the proportions are very important. It has to be one part of gin, three parts of tonic. If you put more quantity of gin and Mm. becomes more alcoholic. Mm. It's not the same enjoyment. So what
0: kind of gin and what kind of tonic do you prefer? Uh,
1: It's one that you don't find easily in America, Mm. but we are trying to solve Mm. this issue. It's from south of Spain, Puerto de Santa Maria, in the Sherry region of Spain, and it's called RIVES, R-I-V, is a victory, E-S. And they have RIVES Especial Triple Distill. It's astonishing. Mm. I love it. It's my favorite. And what about the tonic? Uh, tonic. I've been a big fan of uh, Fever Tree, sure, mm-hmm. sure, uh, for a lot of reasons. But now, also in the same Puerto de Santa Maria, next to where they made the gin, is a new tonic that is going to be showing up in America, mm. and it's called Indie. And I think it's going to make it very big. All right, well, and the last question: in terms of what and what do you do in terms of garnishes or whatnot? Ah, always my favorite: lemon verbena. You get I the lemon verbena Ooh. fresh. You smash it between your two hands. You put it in. Gets the citrusy flavor without being lemony, and to me it's like uh the best Antonio you, can ever, have. you ever do no. this
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, I've been to Barcelona where, or Madrid and had the yeah. gin and tonic bars, but I don't think I've had lemon verbena uh,
1: because we you and I we need to go on vacation together, okay, in my home in my vacation home. Um, we always have plants of lemon verbena that they grow wild in Just spring for and tonics. summer. Only for you and tonics. Uh,
2: patatas bravas or croquetas de bacalao?
1: <laughs> I'll go patatas bravas all oh, the way. It's, a, it's like the perfect snack. Everybody <laughs> so likes good. patatas bravas.
0: Uh, I like this one. Razor clams or regular clams? Uh, razor, are,
1: razor clams are unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I've I've come really, I just love when you go to restaurants and they kind of do them ceviche style, sort of chopped up on there. Razor
1: clams are, especially if you are lucky to go to Finisterre, which is this tiny, tiny fishing village northwest of Spain in Galicia, and you are able to go, like I've done, almost to scuba dive for them. Like you go down and you pick them. Oh, my God, those those razor clams are to die for. They're worth a trip. All right uh Tempranillo or Garnacha Well I I just came back uh, from from Spain and I was with my good friend Alvaro Palacios, that probably mm. is the, the winemaker, some people will say of Spain young Is that uh, pri- is
2: he pr- pr- Priorat? Is that where he was? Or? He's
1: in Priorat but his yeah. family owns a lot of wineries in in Rioja. Oh, okay. And he took over many years ago after okay. unfortunately his father died. He's a guy that, besides a winemaker, he likes to bullfight. He dances. He personally <laughs> likes to bullfight. He, he, he does the oh bullfight. He doesn't kill the bull. He bullfights. He, he dances is. flamenco. But he, he has a nose, and a, so he found this kind of uh, vineyard in, in in Rioja. Rioja is known by Tempranillo. Yeah. But he got this one that only has Grenache, mm-hmm. and he's about to be releasing. This wine that I think doesn't even have name, that is 100 percent Grenache mm. from Rioja. When people start drinking this wine, their life are gonna change forever. D.C. or Bethesda? <laughs> I
0: I love Washington D.C. All right, last question. I'm sure I know the answer. Uh, butter or olive oil?
1: Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, olive oil will be easier. I produce olive oil. I I have partnership yeah. in a in, in a olive oil production north of Madrid, Toledo. But to me, the best mashed potato in the history of mankind is when you, for every kilo of potato, you are able to put there two hundred fifty grams <laughs> of butter and a quarter a, a cap of olive oil. And if you are able to Ooh. bring bring butter and olive oil together. together. You achieve the ultimate mashed potatoes, my friend. I will not go any other way than with both together. Why? Because the world will be better if we are able to be bringing things that they seem so different together. And if we do it together, everything always ends tasting and being better.
0: I think you need to run for office, Jose Andres.
1: (laughs) Only get my accent uh, a little bit better so people really understand what I'm trying to tell them. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Jose. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Carrie Polis, Emma Wurzman, and Lily Sherman with editing by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's. We have new episodes every Wednesday and if you want to tell us about this or any episode, email us at foodcast at gmail.com. Plus, we're now offering online cooking classes with Sir LaTob that feature our recipes. Sign up at bonappetit.com slash cooking classes and learn how to make everything from pork chops to molten chocolate cake. Thanks for listening.